Welcome everyone to episode three of Advice Around the World. I'm Ian Horn, Head of UK Audience Development at CityWire, and I am joined by my brilliant American counterpart, Amelia Garland. Uh, this podcast is all about seeking out anything that's good, great, or entertaining and financial planning, and then broadcasting it to the international planning community. So we start in Dubai, as some of you will have heard, and then we made a call to Australia, and this time we have a very special guest all the way from the United States. Amelia, I think it'd be rude of me to take this intro. That's right, Ian. Today, we are introducing one of the brightest minds in financial planning, a man who produces so much content and knowledge that people have questioned his sleeping patterns. He's the author of the Nerd's Eye View blog and a beacon of wisdom for financial planners worldwide. Michael Kitzes. Welcome to Advice Around the World. So, Michael, thank you for joining us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share with uh, uh, advisors around the world. Yeah, and, and we're really glad to have you on. Um, and we'd like to start this podcast, actually, with a question that helps us to get to know you a bit, really. It's, it's not even a financial planning question, really. Um, so I want you to imagine, Michael, that you're at a dinner party and you have to tell us one interesting story or a thing about yourself. And you can't use anything kind of obvious about your financial planning life. What would your story or your anecdote be? Uh, I, I am a gamer, a video gamer, like a very hardcore video gamer. Um, I'll admit a little bit less in, in, uh, recent years, uh, you know, the travel world has, has taken its toll because I do a, a lot of travel for advisor conferences. Uh, but I, I was the child of two computer scientists. I learned to hack my own video games on the Commodore 64 oh, wow. when I was six years old. <laughs> Uh, I was very hardcore into uh, MUDs, which was sort of the multi-user uh, gaming environment of the 1990s. I was a very hardcore World of Warcraft uh, player, a uh, main tank it in uh, raid leader for anybody who is familiar with that world. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have, um, you know, the, the nerd side of the nerds I view is not just financial planning nerd. Uh, <laughs> I, I have lived gamer nerd as well. Uh, unfortunately, less time for it these days, but uh, I'm still a very active Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes player on my uh, oh, I phone. Love that. That's about all I've got time for. I was say, did, did you ever get close to the kind of professional gaming side of things or, or no? You know, I, I, well, so I'm a, I'm a little bit too old for it that just <laughs> professional gaming wasn't quite coming into its own by the time I had just like travel and financial planning world really started to pick up for me to the point that I couldn't game as much. I'm fairly certain had my whole career just been shifted probably even five years off from where it was, from where it is, uh, there's a very good chance I would have ended out in the professional gaming world. Like I, I was one of those people in the early days of YouTube making like instructional fight videos of how to beat bosses in World of Warcraft and posting the YouTube and getting yeah. 100,000 views, which back then was like that a monster. Amazing. number for video game content but twitch tv wasn't around yet live streaming wasn't quite a thing yet so uh like i, I missed it but not not for lack of interest or passion merely that it, it wasn't quite the right time yeah. for my age age stage career <laughs> uh and uh, now, now, unfortunately, I've got a little bit too far down this financial planning road thing. I don't think I can get back to professional gamer for a while now. Yeah, I think, maybe I'll, I think I'll be maybe, I'll be yeah. the gaming grandpa at some point. Maybe that'll be my my second act career. That's amazing. I think gaming's lost its financial planning's game. Um, although we should probably ask you some some questions about that. 
actually. Yeah. And uh, Amelia, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I have to, I have to commend you for World of Warcraft because I have three brothers here. So I actually grew up playing it too. And I would sell gold on eBay and I was pretty bad. I always got stuck in the graveyard. You probably know that reference. Like, oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I will. So my financial planning and finance background came, came to bear even in World of Warcraft. I would sit in the auction house all day and buy things that were immediately on sale, sale and then repost them into the auction house for, for more. So I had literally millions of gold that I yep. made off the in-game auction house economy, which is essentially a mini game version of a stock market, mm -hmm. uh, except one that's actually a lot easier to play than the real world stock market, which is more competitive. Oh yeah. So uh, e even, even in World of Warcraft, like the, the finance background and the gaming background did intersect. Yep, a lot, of, a lot of lessons learned. So with your business, you, you cover a lot of areas and you've got countless qualifications. For those listening in around the world right now, could you give us a quick overview of what you do day to day? Uh, so, so you can think of my world as, as wearing a, a couple of different hats. And really, it's hard to say there's a day to day or even a week to week world. Maybe there's sort of a month to month uh, uh, cycle. So you, you can think of me as, as sort of in, I guess, four primary categories. Uh, so the first is that uh, I, I, I work within an advisory firm. Uh, I'm the head of planning strategy for a, a firm called Buckingham Wealth Partners, which does both private wealth management directly to consumers and also outsourced investment management and back office services for other advisory firms. Mm -hmm. uh, between the two, we have almost $50 billion under management and about 500 employees. Uh, so we, we live kind of the big firm environment. I came to them relatively recently, having uh, spent most of my career in a smaller independent firm where we grew from, uh, yeah, I think I was employee number eight when I got there, ultimately became a partner and we had 50 employees and $2 billion under management. So I, I, I live a portion of my world in the advisory world itself, although these days I'm not taking on clients directly. You know, if someone comes in, we would love to work with you. Have you? Met, met my partner, Jeff, uh, and, and I'm focused more on strategy, but I live in, a, in an advisory firm world and have for 20 odd years now. Uh, the second part of what I do is uh, writing and speaking. So kitsis.com and the Nerds Eye View blog that you'd mentioned, we also publish a podcast called Financial Advisor Success, telling stories of at least uh, US-based financial advisors and just what they do, how they built their careers. Uh, how they built their businesses and what they found that was successful for them. The third part of what I do is an organization called uh, XY Planning Network or XYPN for short. Uh, XYPN is a business that supports other financial advisory firms that want to build new independent advisory businesses from scratch, specifically to work with Gen X and Gen Y consumers, thus the X and Y in the in the XY Planning Network name. And XYPN in particular uh, pioneered the business model of doing financial planning for monthly subscription fees. Uh, we we uh, made that as part of our founding focus of the organization six years ago, back in 2014. We're since starting to see it go mainstream. Uh, Schwab and some other large firms have adopted it here in the US. Uh, and we're seeing some interest globally. But uh, that was kind of our founding focus for XYPN was, look, if you want to help young people get financial planning advice, uh, when it's hard to serve them with the assets and our management model because they don't have any assets to manage and they don't necessarily want to buy a product, sometimes they just want to pay for advice. We said, well, just charge them for advice, but 
if you're a, you know, if you're a working stiff, you live month to month as your paychecks come in. So you have to pay for things month to month, right? Everything else in our lives, we pretty much pay for on a monthly basis. Let's do financial planning the same way. So that's our focus for XY Planning Network. And we now have almost 1,200 independent advisory firms on the XY Planning Network platform and a, uh, a team of more than 50 in Montana where my co-founder is based. And then the, the fourth category for me is just a series of other businesses uh, that we've built helping the advisor community. So we have a firm called New Planner Recruiting, which is the name applies, helps advisors hire uh, new planners, associate planners and paraplanners into their firms. We have a business called FP Pathfinder uh, that creates flowcharts and checklists for advisors to follow best practices and the advice that they give their clients. Uh, and we have a, a, a fintech company called AdvicePay, which is a payment processing platform specifically to facilitate financial planning fees all digitally. So you know more paper checks. Uh, it's amazing what you can do to make uh, financial planning business models more efficient when you just get rid of the checks. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, most of us are so used to either commission models where the dollars come from the company or assets under management models where we can build directly from investment accounts that what we discovered is one of the hardest things to just charge for financial planning is literally getting paid for it on an efficient, scalable way. And so we solved that with advice pay uh, and actually just recently saw, signed the largest broker dealer uh, in the U.S. with 17,000 advisors who are excited and gearing up to do more what we broadly call fee-for-service financial planning, which is all these various non-commissioned, non-AUM financial planning fee models. Big growth for that here in the U.S. Yeah, congrats on that with LPL. That, that, was, that was very exciting. Yeah, I mean, Michael, there's so much you're doing there. And I think that might be the longest that Amelia and I have ever been silent for, uh, possibly in our professional lives, um, but all for good reason. Um, I'm going to skip my next question. I was going to ask you, you know, why you don't just do financial planning, but you've got so much going on. I, I think I kind of get it. Um, so I'm going to skip along, uh, which is obviously with the firms you've worked with, um, you know, what are, the, what are the kind of hallmarks of the best ones? What separates, the, you know, great from good in a modern financial planning world? So, so there are a few things that I find that, that, that separates great from good. And, and the first thing really to recognize around this is that you know, mar marketplaces are adaptive and competitive. What, what separated the good from the great over the past 10 and 20 years is not, I think, what will separate the good from the great over the next 10 to 20 years. And that's actually an interesting transition point unto itself that I think we're in the middle of today. Uh, there were a lot of pioneers around doing you know, deep comprehensive financial planning. And at the end of the day, that was their fundamental differentiator and grew a lot of successful businesses over the past 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. But that won't be what makes you successful in the future because the word is out, financial planning is on the rise, you know, certainly across the US and now globally, uh, standards are lifting to go along with it. And a lot of the things that differentiated the most successful firms the past 10 and 20 years, in essence, are gonna be table stakes, like the ante you have to bring to the table <laughs> uh, just to play the game over the next 10 to 20 years. So when I look over the past 10 to 20 years, what, what has differentiated in practice or what has led to a standout in practice, I think there are a couple of common themes that we, uh, that we routinely see. Uh, one is the underlying business model itself and the economics of what it incentivizes. And, and I'm not specifically talking about commissions versus fees and a lot of the industry debates that we've had around the globe of commissions versus fees and conflicts of interest and fiduciary duty, although I think that stuff is crucially important. Mm -hmm. 
What we've actually shown, even from some of the benchmarking studies that we've conducted through Kitsis Research, is that simply having advisors on recurring revenue business models, AUM being the quintessential one, like once clients are on board, they stay on board. Uh, even having advisors on recurring revenue business models tends to drastically change where they focus their time and energy mm -hmm. to provide more services to their existing clients uh, because you get paid for it, right? The fundamental challenge in the commission-based model is when you, every January 1st, when you wake up, your income is zero until you go find new people to, to get in the door and do business with. So you tend to spend a lot of time on business development. You really only hire staff who can go out and get clients. And everything's always focused on the next new client, very little for existing clients, unless you've got an opportunity to go back and sell them something new. When you're in a recurring revenue model, your fundamental focus first and foremost is retain the clients, right? I wake up on January 1st and I might have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of revenue. All I have to do is not screw this up, which means instead of hiring salespeople to get the new client, I hire uh, service people to service the heck out of my existing clients to keep them on board. And when you do that systematically over time for the past 10 and 20 years, you see the massive growth of the assets and our management model because advisors have become fundamentally more incentivized to provide more and deeper service for their clients. And then we just iterate on that, literally do more service, deeper advice, things like CFP certification or whatever the advanced designation of choices in your country and all the things that come with it but the fundamental root to it is when we're incentivized to retain clients in levelized compensation models, we do. And I mean, we can see it clearly in the benchmarking data, even when we do time studies of the amount of time that advisors spend in various activities, drastically different in client service time between recurring revenue models and transactional models. And when you do that compounding over time, you get standout firms. What about when you know, firms meet a certain capacity with their clients and what are some effective ways for advisors to scale their practice there? Because we've seen recently just a real shift from this investment centric model at, the, at these firms to more holistic. So the reality around capacity, look on paper from a business perspective, it, it's really quite simple and straightforward. Uh, when there are more clients than you can handle, you hire another person hand off the clients to them and mm -hmm. go get more. It really is that straightforward from the business perspective. Again, when you're in a recurring revenue model, the economics of this are very conducive. At some point I've got my, whatever it is, my, my hundred clients that generate a few hundred thousand dollars of revenue, depending on what my economics and revenue per client are. And at some point I've got to say, you know, uh, $300,000 of revenue recurring attached to these clients. And so I can go find an advisor and say, look, here's the deal. I'm going to pay you $100,000 a year. And your sole job is to sit at a desk and service the heck out of these clients. Mm -hmm. Give them awesome financial planning and go get financial planning degrees and designations so you can be more awesome for them. The firm generates $300,000 of revenue. The advisor gets paid effectively a third of that. They get a stable job, no business development obligations, no other uh, expectations beyond be awesome for these clients, retain them. And maybe if a one, if a new one knocks you on the head because they got referred, at least accept them and bring them in. And it, and it, it really does sort of get that simple. We tend to make it a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Now, again, in the, in the, in the transactional world of not so long ago, 
you couldn't fundamentally do this because you never woke up on January 1st with hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue. You woke up on January 1st, and your income was zero and you went, oh geez, I gotta go find some clients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you don't hire service people, you hire more salespeople. And then you hit the scalability limitations because the only thing you can ever do to scale a sales business is to hire more salespeople, which is sort of a slippery slope you never, you, you never overcome. Uh, recurring, revenue transa- recurring revenue relationship businesses as opposed to transactional businesses actually scale much more effectively because it becomes in the most true sense, just cost effective for the firm to start hiring great non-business development service-oriented people to give awesome service to clients. There are a whole lot of advisors out there whose dream job is get paid a nice income to give awesome financial advice to your clients with no business development requirements. Yeah, Michael, can I jump in here? Because I think what you're describing really is like high quality organic growth. Um, But the build on that, I mean, in the UK, I, I don't think enough of the public really understands what financial planning is or the value of it. Uh, in America, obviously, we were talking about the DOL on a previous podcast, and mm-hmm. you know the failure for that kind of thing to go through probably leaves a sour taste uh, with a lot of consumers. Oh, yeah. So, so beyond you know great organic growth within individual businesses, what do you think we can do to really improve the reputation of financial planning and make more people aware of how powerful it can be? Well, to me, ultimately, like lifting trust in our profession in the aggregate to me is all about standards. Uh, like it's why things like best interest fiduciary duties are so crucially important uh, is you know, just the fact that in so many countries around the world, including ours, right? The first thing you have to do is figure out whether the professional you're seeing is actually in the business of advice or if they're actually in the business of product sales and their advice is only incidental to setting up the sale of the product. And it becomes immensely confusing. And then we have bad experience and we have bad experiences. We don't trust the system. And then we tell others who don't trust the system either. You know, when I, when I go to the clothing store and the person says the jeans look good on me, we all understand he works on commission. <laughs> <laughs> we understand how to interpret this advice, this advice in air quotes. You know, if I go to the butcher shop and he says, buy this cut of steak, it's great for you. I understand he's not actually giving me heart and nutritional advice. He's a butcher, he sells meat. <laughs> uh, the challenge that we have in our industry is for a long time, we had these separate channels. There were people that sold products and there were people that gave advice. And as technology has increasingly made products accessible to consumers directly, the product business has gone into the advice business, which as I view is a, a fantastic step up in just quality and depth of service, what clients ultimately get, the value we create, all that's positive. But most countries, our regulatory rules are still written as though we've got advisors who are separate from product people. And now we're dealing with this great convergence of the two that's leading to all the regulatory rule rewriting, right? That's why we see fiduciary rulemaking happening in almost every developed financial advisor uh, country around the world all at the same time. It's because of this convergence of product and advice and regulators one at a time all saying, oh, geez, these people that we regulated under product rules are really primarily in the advice business now. I guess we need to regulate them as advisors, which in the short term creates a lot of industry disruption to make that switch. In the long term, though, to me, that's the most fundamental aspect of building trust. I'm, I'm not a fan of 
you know, lots of regulation and like your rares of regulation. I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur. I tend to bristle against regulations that slow down my ability to grow businesses. But th this is an area where I think the regulation matters when you get down to what is the fundamental expectation that a consumer can have when someone dons the quote financial advisor hat expecting them to actually be an advisor, which almost by definition of the word means I'm giving you advice, which is for you, not for me, mm -hmm. uh, is, is absolutely essential for rebuilding trust, right? If you look at the average financial advisor, they spend as much as 20 to 30% of their time on business development for an established, uh, for a newer advisor, it could be 50 to 80% of their time on business development. How many new doctors do you know that spend 50 to 80% of their time on business development, right? This is not usually what we expect of trusted professionals. The fact that we lack the trust actually puts us in a slippery slope where we have to spend all this time on business development, convincing people to trust us because we haven't cleaned ourselves up. And so I, I to me, that's what we're doing now. So in, in the aggregate, I actually think this is about regulatory standards that lift trust. And, and weed out our bad apples. At the individual advisor level though, marketing is all about individual level differentiation. How is your firm gonna stand out and be the best for whatever your segment of clients are that you wanna serve? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to move the conversation on to something different, Michael, is um, FinTech. Um, obviously you've put together the FinTech solutions map. You work quite heavily in the FinTech space. Uh, and this is something that's really become a big area for us. Um, in the UK, I write a, a weekly fintech blog. It's a bit more entry level than the stuff you're writing, to be completely honest. But um, the main thing is, we've got an industry that perhaps hasn't um, introduced fintech as well as it should have done. And now that everyone's doing the lockdown over here, and I assume elsewhere, um, people are realizing how, how just how important that tech is. Um, and how important it is that everything speaks to each other and communicates properly and basically serves more clients more efficiently, et cetera. Um, what I want to know is right now, um, which tech do you think has been most important during this lockdown? Um, and beyond that, which tech should firms really want to integrate as soon as possible? And which tech gets overlooked that people really need to use more? So, so at its core, I would say like, uh, just the, the tech that we found that is more essential than anybody realized, it, in essence, is the video conferencing, right? Just literally being able to communicate with clients when suddenly we can't reach them in person. What I really think it speaks to, though, at a more fundamental level is the technology we use to uh, communicate and collaborate with clients, mm -hmm. for which you know, Zoom or your video conferencing of choice just happens to be one option. This is equally relevant to say, okay, so when, when the pandemic shutdown ends and all your clients now know they can communicate with you via Zoom, why would they actually show up in your office? Yep. Like, what are you going to do in your office that's so special that we can't do now over a Zoom call? And there are some pieces there, mostly around, well, even deeper levels of collaboration, right? I can have a conversation with you here. Maybe I can screen share with you here, but it's not the same as putting your plan up on a big screen in our conference room and actually having the conversation in person, all of us looking at the big screen, manipulating the numbers live in real time and seeing how you react, what your body language is, as well as what you're saying. So I see the office becoming more of a, a 
a on-site collaboration center, still something that we use technology for because I, we can't do financial planning calculations in our heads. Like we do need the technology. Uh, but the way that we look at technology and think about collaboration in all the different channels by which we can do collaboration, I think becomes one of the biggest shifts that really was underway in the first place. You know, I, I've been hmm. talking about how the future of planning is going to rely more on things like video conferencing for many, many years now. Uh, the pandemic is, I think, just causing the future to arrive a little bit faster than expected. Yeah. The second piece of tech I would highlight, though, getting back to your original question of, of you know, what, what is it that needs to, you know, to, to interconnect more, I think increasingly what, what firms are all uh, realizing was a gap that they're trying to close is just how absolutely essential uh, CRM systems are to be the central hub for everything from data, communication, workflows, execution. Now it's not only about communicating with clients and pulling in data from different tech. Uh, it's also about being able to track the metrics of your business because you're trying to figure out if your team is still productive when they're not on site, which means you have to be more results-based, which means you need a CRM system that captures the results that are occurring so you know how to measure whether you're getting the results-based effects that you want. Uh, I, I think we're going to end out through this process uh, highlighting a lot of gaps in the robustness of CRM systems in particular that some are not holding up as well as others as being hubs and many firms in the smaller independent end we find still aren't using uh, CRM systems. You know, their, their, their CRM system is their email inbox. Yeah. Uh, and, and that doesn't work so well the moment you have other team members, especially in a more digital remote environment. So I, yeah. I, I see more opportunities for leveraging tech around uh, collaboration and communication and gaps that we still could get a lot more out of our CRM systems and connecting all the data to make the CRM systems our real hubs. We're all, you know, living in a digital world now. So having those capabilities are more important than ever. And, and, I, and what you mentioned about Zoom too, I mean, every one of my meetings with different RIAs and Ian as well, just we're really utilizing this technology and we both used to travel every week. So we're realizing now we, we actually don't need to do that. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot we're learning too on this. That's it for part one with Michael Kitsis. Tune in next week for the second episode where we will discuss if larger RIAs should be taking out PPP loans, how to build a personal brand, and we finally find out if Michael Kitsis actually sleeps. Thanks for tuning in.